You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York, a community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. And now for the lectionary, this is a reading from the book of Exodus. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua and Moses went up into the mountain of God. He said to the elders, wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six, six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. The word of the Lord. And then the second reading is from the book of 2 Peter. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture can, comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The word of the Lord. Now a reading from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 17, verses 1 through 9. And so after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise, and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. The word of the Lord. You may be seated this morning. Kayla, beautiful words, excellent job. Thank you so much. Yes. Jacqueline accidentally left this up here, so finders keepers. That's how life works. We are in the final Sunday before Lent, and today is Transfiguration Sunday. For those out there who are nerds when it comes to all things Orthodox, there's the Feast of the Transfiguration in August. Today is Transfiguration Sunday. We have a resident church historian here who reminds me on a regular basis if I put the right verses out or if I didn't. I will not say his name. It's very... Got a lot of vowels in it. He cries. He's laughing now. Advent was the season where we celebrate the fact that the light is coming into the world. It's, the, it's what teaches us to have hope when it's dark. It teaches us that as Christians, we are called to live by an announcement. Our primary life is Advent. Our primary life is waiting. Do I have anybody in here who is waiting for something? Advent it teaches us to live by the light of the announcement. 
When we move on from that, we move to the season of Epiphany, which is the realization that the light is here, but the light is now a baby. The light has come, and he's wrapped in swaddling cloths, and he's lying in a manger. And so this teaches us that even when the thing we're waiting for arrives, it doesn't arrive always in the full extent of what we wanted. It arrives in a way that's going to grow with our capacity to be able to receive it. So again, if you're waiting for something, that thing may very well already be in your life, but it may be of a sort and of a way where God is going to allow it to grow with your growth so it doesn't outgrow you. Because sometimes when blessings outgrow us, they can crush us as much as not having blessings can. There may be ways where you pray, Lord, give me a new job. Lord, give me a new house. Lord, send me to a new place. Lord, do all these things. And then God answers all those prayers and then you don't have time to love your neighbor as yourself anymore. So there's a way in which that God wants to bless us, but he's always going to bless us within our capacity to handle the blessing in a way where the blessing doesn't handle us. That's epiphany in a nutshell. We are now entering the season of Lent. Advent is the announcement that the light is coming. Epiphany is the announcement that the light is here, but it's growing with us. Lent is now the feast that says that light has come and now it is shining on us, and it's shining into our darkness. Yay. Everybody loves the poppin' when the house is not ready. That's what Lent is. Lent is Jesus turning on all the lights, and us saying, I didn't know you were coming. And he's like, perfect, now I see what's really going on. It's called Rats in the Basement by C.S. Lewis. You want to know if you got a rat in the basement? Don't sneak downstairs. They'll be gone by the time you get there. Run as fast as you can, and you might be lucky enough to hear one. He always says that it's not the moments that you're prepared for that reveal who you really are. It's the moments when you're caught off guard that reveal who you really are. Ugh. I can't wait for Easter. March is the worst. I know that I can't force my opinion on anybody, but, like, does anybody... be? And don't raise your hand if your birthday is in March. That doesn't count. <laughs> Does anybody actually like March? We need to meet. We need to talk. Maybe it's me. Like, one of us will learn something, which will be great. It's like, it comes in like a lion and leaves like a lion that made a mess. Anyway, ramblings about March aside... This season of Lent is not about darkness. It's about light that shines in our darkness. And listen to me, it's not any light. It's not like when we turn on a light. His uncreated, everybody say uncreated. The uncreated light of God shines the kind of light that does expose the darkness, but it doesn't accuse it, it heals it. When we shine lights, like in old movies, when the police would shine a light on somebody's face and say, where were you the night of the 13th? Oh, that kind of light is an accusatory light, right? The lights shining on me right now accuse me for being out of shape, and I start sweating and need to turn on the air conditioner, which every, is everybody's favorite part of the service. His light is an uncreated light. If you notice in the text, Moses' face shone after he was in the cloud, but Jesus' face was lit up before the cloud showed up because his light is an uncreated light. His light is the light that lit up the cloud that lit up Moses' face. But nothing lights up Jesus' face except for Jesus himself. And when his uncreated light shines on us, it doesn't shine an accusatory, see, I told you light. It shines a light that gives us the grace to heal the darkness. A Roman Catholic priest, Fulton J. Sheen, said this, See, our Lord did not disdain either the stable or the tomb, we may be sure he will not shrink from making us the temple of his presence. Since our Lord did not disdain either the stable or the tomb, we may be sure that he will not shrink from making us the temple of his presence. 
He saw the manger and said, that's a place I'd like to go. He saw the tomb and said, that's a place I would like to go. If those two things are true at the bookends of his life, he sees you exactly the way you are right now if nothing ever changed and said, that is a place I would love to go. And in all the voices of our culture, we need to know that when God sees us, as we are in that moment, with nothing changing, uh, even an iota, he rests with us because he doesn't look for us to change so that he could have a place in us. That's what we're going to call today the or else voice, and I'll explain that in a moment. He doesn't need us to change to rest with us. He rests in us and brings change in that rest. There's a difference. He doesn't make you silver. He refines you because you've always been silver to him. And I know that for some reason in church, when we preach these really convicting kind of sermons where we like say things and prove sin and, you know, sort of like do the whole exhortation thing, we get excited and we say amen because you know what? We're actually not used to hearing somebody just say we're good enough as we are because we barely ever say it to ourselves, and not too many people say it to us. So it feels too good to be true, but as Dr. Chris Green says, if something in the gospel seems too good to be true, that's the proof that it is exactly true the way that it was said. Or as Randall Worley likes to say, once you think you've exaggerated the goodness of God, it's in that moment that you realized you didn't say enough about it at all. As you are, and as anybody else is outside of this room, he makes his home in them. Salvation is not the moment that God makes his home in us. It's the moment we realize he's been our home all along. Today, God wants to heal, and in this Lenten season, I believe that God wants to heal the extremes of our doing and our resting. We think, think Mary and Martha for a quick second, the story of Mary and Martha. Martha's all upset that Mary's not helping, and then Jesus says Mary chose the better part. Just think of that story, and what we do when we read it is we say, like, how do we have a rhythm of both Mary and Martha? How do we work, and how do we rest, and how do we get that rhythm? And today, instead of getting clinical like that, I want us to say this. You ready? If Jesus doesn't lay his hand on our working, and if Jesus doesn't lay his hand on our resting, even if there's a healthy balance of the two, they will both be idolatry. We could have a healthy balance of doing wrong things. <laughs> Come hang out with me for 15 minutes. I have a nice repertoire of all of my sins. I start one and then I put it back so it doesn't get too much and pick another one and then put it back. Like Nice rhythm, really nice rhythm. I keep it fresh. We need Jesus to lay his hand on our work on our attitude towards working, and on our attitude towards resting because we can't live in an under an or else voice. Work well or else. Rest well or else. We all have a voice in us that is an or else voice. You're going to hear me say this a lot for the next six weeks. Even the good things if the good things are matched with an or else voice, it's law, it's not grace. So do we have to work? Yes. Do we have to rest? Yes. But if Jesus doesn't heal our working and our resting, we could have a healthy balance of both and they could both be toxic the entire time. Everybody knows Mary and Martha are in that story. Does anybody know whose house they were in? Say it loud. Somebody said it. Lazarus's house. And we never talk about Lazarus when we talk about Mary and Martha. But Lazarus is the way that we understand Mary and Martha because it's at his house. In other words, our work and our rest need to be touched by God so they could be brought back to life, like Lazarus. Without understanding Lazarus, we can't resolve Mary and Martha. Lazarus is the one who died and was risen again. 
Our work needs to die so Jesus can raise it. Our resting needs to die so that Jesus can raise it. And what needs to die is the voice that says, do this or else, stop doing that or else. We're going to talk about this right now. So Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration, and he's talking to Moses and Elijah, which, if we had time, is an amazing conversation about what exactly is happening in that moment. But here's something that's been challenging for me over the last year or so preaching, is that whenever we're talking about a story where there's Moses and then there's Jesus, or there's David and then there's Jesus, it's tempting to talk about it like Jesus is the one who replaces Moses or is better than Moses or he does right what Moses does wrong. And we have, if you, if you really think about it, when we're in church, especially when we're talking about the Bible, we have this sort of like competitive way of talking about the Old Testament and the New Testament. And I'm thinking, how can I talk about things where it's not replacement or it's not one is better or it's not this one supersedes that one because that's kind of how our culture is, no? It's like I have this thing in my life and then when something better comes along, it's like now I have this thing and that thing was stupid. And like when you're doing thing A, you're like everybody should do thing A. It's so much fun to do thing A. And then thing B comes along and you're like, I don't know why anybody does thing A. Thing B is amazing. And we move through life with friends, with ourselves, and we have like these replacement thoughts and superseding thoughts and competitive thoughts. And the reality is Jesus doesn't, he didn't come to replace the law. He says it himself. He did not come to replace the law. What did he come to do? He came to fulfill it. He doesn't do away with it. He finishes it. He doesn't do away with Moses and Elijah. He dines with them and talks with them, and he accepts them into his work. He brings their work into his work and makes their work whole. He doesn't replace it. He doesn't say it was less than. He brings it into his work. That's what he's doing with me and you every single day. He's not saying, I could have done it better. He's saying, take whatever you did today and bring it into my work. We said it yesterday. Kids, cast the net to the other side. Bring some fish over here. And when they brought the fish over, Jesus already had fish cooking. Which means if you bring work that is good, he'll put it on the grill with his work. If you show up empty-handed with nothing, he's got fish for you already. His work doesn't replace our work. He calls our work into his work. Now, before Moses goes up the mountain, this is really important. Moses works to administrate. He keeps... Aaron and her and some leaders at the bottom. He takes with him some assistance. He's got an organized flow before he goes up the mountain. He's got stuff going on down here in case there's a dispute. He's got a few people to go up the mountain with him. He goes into the mountain, and after six days, which means it's on day seven, God begins to talk to him. So all this work to administrate, to get things ready. He doesn't just leave people. He leaves people set and, and complete, kind of like Jesus, not just leaving his house, but giving Mary somebody to take care of her. Good leaders in any walk of life don't just leave before they set up something in their absence so it keeps working. Sidebar for you. Then after six days, on the seventh day, God speaks to Moses. After the work... If you go to the gospel story, Jesus feeds the 4,000. Then he tells us to take up our cross and follow him. Then he's going to go up a mountain, and he leaves nine disciples. I had to do simple first grade math there for a second. He leaves, leaves nine disciples down at the bottom, and he takes Peter, James, and John with him. So he does exactly what Moses did. He teaches, he leads, he tells us to take up our cross and follow him, which is key. Then he leaves some leadership at the bottom of the mountain, and it says, after six days, on the seventh day, Jesus was transfigured before them. So in both stories, God speaks on the seventh day. Speaks to Moses on the seventh day, Jesus and the cloud and the transfiguration and the voice of God overwhelm the disciples on the seventh day. Both stories happen, and this is our line for Lent. 
The seventh day is rest from the or else voice. The seventh day is rest from the or else voice. Think of anything in the Ten Commandments. Think of anything in the gospel. Let's pick one that's in the Ten Commandments and one that's in the gospel. You shall not have any other gods before me. Love God and love neighbor. On these two commandments hang all the law and all the prophets. Yes? Whether you're talking about an Old Testament rule or you're talking about a New Testament, New Covenant, Better Covenant, Grace rule, what makes it law is not what testament it comes from, Salem Tabernacle. What makes it law is not that it was written in the 613 codes of the Old Testament. What makes it law is not that it's found before Jesus. Listen, what makes anything law is when it's attached to an or else voice. Love your neighbor as yourself or else. That's slavery. That's accusatory. That's coercive. Raise those kids well or else they will never turn out right. Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church or else they will find somebody who will. That might be true. That's why I put a sticky note in Jacqueline's readings that said, I love you, but she didn't mention it. So I needed to tell you that I did that. <laughs> Get a good job. Handle your money well or else. Does anybody know what I'm talking about, about that voice that creeps up in you? Start doing this or else it will all fall apart. Stop doing that, or else it will all fall apart. When you live under an or else, and listen, it's not always somebody saying it to you. Most of the time, it's you saying it to yourself. I worked all week. I got everything done. It's time to relax, but maybe I got to pop back in the office, or else something could go wrong if I don't do the 80 millionth overdone thing. The or else voice will take your humanity from you. The or else voice will rob you of the joy of doing well. And guess what? The or else voice will rob you of the joy of repenting. Because you won't be repenting to get closer to Jesus. You'll be repenting to save yourself from the guilt you put on yourself with the or else voice. The gospel doesn't say or else. The law says love your neighbor as yourself or else. The gospel says, love your neighbor as yourself because Jesus has given you the grace to do it. One sounds a lot more freeing than the other one. Follow the rules or else God will curse you. Follow the rules because Jesus already became a curse for you. And you're free to learn and you have time to learn. The seventh day is rest from the or else voice. A couple more examples of what the or else voice is. The or else voice is the voice that tells you you're only as good as the last thing that you did or didn't do. You got it right all week long. You were patient all week long. And you were saying all week long, I'm very proud of myself. I've dealt with a few things that normally I would have handled terribly. Has anybody have a, had a few of these successful moments before where you're straight up like, yo, does anybody see what I just walked through and I'm still like, I didn't send out mass text messages and send out emails and CC everybody on them? Like, is anybody impressed with the fact that I was just chill during that? Like, it's okay to celebrate yourself sometimes, Salem. I need you to know this. When you know that God has changed you and healed you and it's working, can you please celebrate a little bit? It's not arrogant to tell yourself what God is telling you, well done, my good, good and faithful servant. Amen. We don't celebrate ourselves enough because we're afraid of being arrogant. It's arrogant when you celebrate yourself in comparison to someone else. It's very healthy to celebrate yourself when God is celebrating you. Jesus, we cast out demons and it worked. And Jesus is like, I know. I saw Satan fall from heaven. Good job, guys. He didn't say you shouldn't be excited. So I'm, I'm celebrating right along with you. I also know that you're about to have trouble with a demon in a minute, but I'm going to let you kids have this one. Good job. Really good job. You're all going to flee and abandon me in my worst moment. But right now, you're doing so well. And then at the end of the week, you lose your patience for 30 seconds. And in your mind, 
it knocks the dominoes down backwards, and it ruins everything you celebrated up to that point. That's what Satan wants. Nine things go well. I do one thing wrong, and now I can no longer celebrate the nine things because it all didn't go well. We treat each other that way. We treat ourselves that way. That's law. Grace says, I'm going to help you pick up that domino, but look at all the other dominoes that used to fall that didn't fall this week. Good job, my good and faithful servant. You're getting better. One day you're going to have 89 dominoes. Why did I just start thinking about pizza when I said that? Am I the only one in the house? Domino's pizza? The fast food of pizza? It's really good. Anyway. Yo, it's crazy town in my brain sometimes. We know. <laughs> You're not supposed to agree with me when I say certain things. I say amazing oracles from God and everybody's like, I criticized myself once and the church is like, this is the best sermon I have ever heard. Listen to this prayer from the daily office this morning. Oh God, who before the passion of your only begotten son revealed his glory upon the mountain, grant us that we, beholding by faith the light of his countenance, may be strengthened to bear our cross and be changed into his likeness from glory to glory. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Who before the passion revealed himself in glory on the Mount of Transfiguration, and in that revealing gave us the grace to take up our cross and follow him. Before Transfiguration, Jesus said, you have to take up your cross and follow me. Rule. That was a rule he gave. Then on the Mount of Transfiguration, he bestowed on us the grace to be able to do it. That's what makes it a better covenant. Listen, when you hear old covenant, new covenant, we're not talking about the words we use. We're talking about the thing that binds it to becoming a success. In the old covenant, it's not that there are rules that change. There's a, as a matter of fact, Jesus said there's an infinite amount of more rules than there is in the old covenant. The old covenant's for infants. Uh, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But men, if you look at a woman walk by you and you follow her as she walks by you, you've committed adultery. He made it more hard, more difficult, more crazy when it comes to the new covenant. What makes it a better covenant isn't that it has less rules. It's that what makes it a success is no longer your effort, but Jesus' grace. That's why there's priests in the church because the issue isn't that the priesthood is disbanded. It's just what we preside over is no longer threat but grace. The thing that we're now offering, we don't, we don't receive animals. And as it says in Hebrews, the blood of bulls and goats, we offer bread. It's the same priesthood, but it's just offering a different covenant. We have to name identify and work through what our personal or else voice is. I know what mine are. I know what the voice in my life sounds like when I hear the or else. And I'm not going to tell you because it's my personal business. But you have yours too. And my prayer is that this Lenten season beginning on Ash Wednesday, we stop playing around and acting like we don't have it and write down what is our or else voice. What is the voice in my head that accuses me? What does it sound like? Whose voice is it? Is it a voice of somebody you know? Is it your own voice? Is it the voice of something that was said to you a long time ago? Is it the voice of your fear hijacking Jesus' voice? It's different for all of us. You could have had a tiny little moment in Starbucks where you turned around and bumped into somebody and they dropped their coffee on the floor and they were like, thanks, idiot, and because they were having a bad day. And you didn't realize now that for the rest of your life, that little comment is now a voice. And whenever you lose your car keys, you say, I'm so dumb. And have no idea that it came from this little moment where somebody said something to you on the right day for it to germinate in you without you realizing it. Jesus wants to help us find that voice. 
And only Jesus can take the tear out without harming the wheat. And that's what he does during Lent. It's why we fast. It's why we give something up. It's why I'm, I'm asking you to give something up for Lent, but I'm also putting a book in your hand that's going to fill the space of the thing you're giving up, and it's going to feed you. Chris's book has some anointing on it. I barely ever do this with books, but I feel that this is a good book for us to discuss, for us to cut up, for us to digest, for us to talk about, for us to agree with, for us to disagree with, because all of those conversations, I already disagree with him about stuff in the book, and I've already told him that, and he said thank you, and I'm like, he's going to chop my head off one of these days, but right now he's saying thank you. He couldn't possibly be that patient, but then maybe he could. I'm, I'm nervous. We will see. I'm like, Chris, uh, page 47, what are you talking about? He's like, oh, I knew you were going to text me about that. I'm like, okay. Well, I was just kidding. Page 48, I meant. Now what? Listen, our doing, our resting, our merriness, our Martha-ness has to become listening during Lent. Listen while you work. <laughs> Listen while you rest. Yo, I was like, I'm not going to do it. Somebody will. <laughs> we have to listen. On Moses' mountain, God wrote the law in stone. And as almost all of the church fathers say, on Easter Sunday, Jesus rolled away the stone of the law, exposing the bread of mercy and grace. But it, he didn't roll away the law, Salem. He rolled away what the law was written on. It's no longer written on stone that just holds up an accusation. It's now written on the nail-scarred hands of Jesus, and he offers us the law as bread to nourish us, not stone to stone us. So when they say the stone was rolled away, it's what the law was written on. Because even in Moses' story, he comes down the mountain, he sees that the people disobeyed, he breaks the Ten Commandments, goes back up the mountain, and then God gives it to him again, but God puts it in a mercy seat. And he covers it with the cherubim and the seraphim. And the law now resides. The law doesn't hit the people directly anymore. The law hits mercy and grace. And now on Mount Tabor, on the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses is now looking at the mercy seat that that law was written in all along. He's staring at the one who is the mercy seat that those tablets went in. And his name is Jesus. And his face shines with a light that gives the sun its light. He doesn't roll away the law. He rolls away what the law is written on. Until Jesus, the law was written on the stony voice of do this or else. But now the law is written on we're good no matter what you do. Let my love motivate you to do well. Let my acceptance of you. Some of you have been in a relationship where you felt like if I don't perform well in all aspects of this relationship, I might lose it. And somebody might have held that over you. Somebody may have made you feel like if you don't love them the way that they deem they should be loved, then you're not a healthy person. Jesus is the space that says, I love you so much that however you love me back is going to be perfectly fine with me as long as I have you. And what motivates anybody to love better? Does threat motivate any of us to love better? Does threat ever work? You better say I do or I'll pull the trigger. I do. Did that mean anything to anybody? When there's acceptance first, it actually gives us space to finally love, not just behave, to love. The law written on stone teaches us to behave. The law written on the nail-scarred, breaded hands of Jesus teaches us to love. Teaches us to love. To be loved, Salem. We need to learn how to be loved better. We're not great at being loved. We're not great at thinking we're lovable. We say things like, I just got to get out of this tent. I hate my body. I'm getting old. This is, and Jesus says none of those things about us. 
fearfully and wonderfully made. I love your flesh so much, I became it to fill it up into the measure of who I am. We just got to get out of this world. We just got to get out of this body. We just, I just got to get out of this job. Jesus is so busy getting into all the things we hate that we get out of them and don't real. Where did he go? He's back where you were trying to escape from. The law of accusation is rolled away so that the law of mercy and grace and love can be present. We have to receive this love and believe it's ours. Otherwise, we will never be able to offer it. You're going to say amen. I'm, even worse than you saying amen, I'm going to preach this. And then later today, my kids will think, man, if I don't behave, dad doesn't love me very much. Well, what do you mean I don't love you? Of course I love you. I know. But the way you get when we don't do it right, you pay a lot of attention to us. And when we are getting it right, you don't. So guess what I'm going to start doing to get dad's attention? But we do that with ourself. We pay all kinds of attention to ourselves when we get it wrong. This church will hoot and holler if I preach messages about sin and how we need to be convicted and change and come to the altar. It'll be packed. Because we're used to that. We get that. But when we teach messages about the fact that before you ever change, God wants you to learn to love yourself because when you love yourself, you can love your neighbor as if you hate yourself, you have no room to love even the closest person to you. At best, you'll have space to tolerate the person closest to you. But ladies and gentlemen, does tolerating work for long? My mom had a phrase. I've had it up to here with you. Mom, it's impossible to have it up to here with somebody. I'm no scientist, but I'm assuming this is about as high as you could have it up to anything. This means you're just done. You're finished. I've had it up to here with you. That means I can't tolerate you anymore. Tolerating doesn't work. It just bides time before we get accusatory again. And please understand, I'm busting my mom's chops. My mom has loved me through some stuff. She has, she has loved me through some stuff. We got to teach, we have to be taught to love ourselves. 95% of the reason why we lose it on each other or the people around us is because we can't stand ourselves. One more thing, five more things. When somebody does something in an area of your life where you're confident, you'll have patience. You'll have patience. Somebody disagrees with me about something that I'm very comfortable with what I believe. Very, I'll have a great conversation with you. Whenever somebody challenges us or does something to us in an area of our life that we are already insecure about, that's when we bite back. We don't bite back where we're the most confident. It's fine if you disagree with me, I'm good. But when somebody's saying something to you or looking at you or handling you in an area where you're already insecure about you, kids have an amazing way of doing this with parents, that's when we bite. I had to tell Sophia the truth the other day. I yelled at her because she was doing something dangerous and didn't listen. And I had to tell her. She's like, I know you yelled, but it, you, she said to me, she goes, I know you needed to yell, but you also sounded very rude. We should not have named her wisdom. That's on me. <laughs> said, here's the thing. The reason why I got rude is because I got scared. I'm insecure about your health and well-being. And when your health and well-being seems like it's in the balance, I'm going to get rude with whoever is making that happen. In this case, Sophia, it was you. 
But that's, the, that's a silly story to illustrate a larger truth that whenever somebody's doing something wrong and it's in our area of insecurity, that's when we bite. And that's when we need to learn to love ourselves so that we're secure even with our insecurities. Like, I know I have them, but I know that I know that I have them. And I can be secure in the fact that I have insecurities. And that's what Lent is going to offer. It's not going to take away our insecurities, but it's going to make us okay that we have them so the next time they get plucked or stepped on, maybe we don't react. John, Steph, worship team, you guys can come on up, please. When it's all over, Peter tries, Peter tries to make tabernacles, and there's thousands of things to talk about when he's in he's in the light of God and it's making him insecure because he's seeing his true self because he's seeing Jesus's true self and he's essentially saying can can we put this light inside of a tabernacle please can we can I build three tabernacles one for you one for Moses one for Elijah and and no one lets him do it because we have this tendency to want to be secure in things that we can build in structures that we can put together but here's the thing God doesn't want uh, Moses Elijah and Jesus to be in separate tabernacles he wants them to be in the same one so right away you can tell that Peter is speaking something very healthy. He wants to do something for the Lord, and that's healthy. But what he wants to do is to separate Jesus from Moses and Elijah. And you ready? This is God's word to you this morning. Jesus doesn't let Peter build tabernacles because Peter doesn't need to build three tabernacles because Peter, James, and John are already three tabernacles. You don't need to recreate yourself for anybody. Least God. You don't have to try to build something for Jesus to inhabit that's different than you. He doesn't want, he never wanted a temple. Read the Bible very carefully. He never wanted a temple. He let a temple be built because we needed one. But he never wanted a temple. Because he always wanted to dwell in us. It's just us that wanted him to dwell in the temple to stay away from us. Please dwell in that building so you don't come anywhere near me. I'll come to you, but please, you stay there when I leave. But this time, the cloud overshadows Peter, James, and John and says, You're the tabernacle. Peter later will write, we are like precious stones being built up into a holy temple for the presence of God. Where did he learn this? He learned that he was the tabernacle that he wanted to build when God said, you don't need to do this, you're already in the presence, which means, where's the presence go? In the tabernacle. And then the presence falls on Peter, James, and John, so they must be. What if Jesus is the tabernacle Moses couldn't build with his best efforts. You ready? What if Jesus is the cave that Elijah needed to run to for safety and finally finds it? What if Peter, James, and John are the tabernacle and didn't even know it? They open their eyes and it says they see nothing but Jesus. And they can't stand up. And he bends down and he touches them. In the Old Testament, when the glory showed up, the priest couldn't stand up. But this time, the glory touches them and says, you can stand up now. It's not written on stone anymore. It's written on bread. You can stand up now. You can stand up now. The Oralt's voice, his days are numbered in you. You'll be able to stand up. God put Moses in the cleft of a rock 
so that the glory could pass by, and then God let Moses look at the glory as it was passing by. Now Moses, on the Mount of Transfiguration, is seeing what the front of the glory always was. It was Jesus carrying his cross. Moses' eyes could not see that yet. But now he couldn't. Unless we fear God, we will fear having to manage our own life and keep all of our stuff together. The or else voice comes from thinking, I have to keep all my stuff together. When they stand up, it says they saw no one but Jesus only. Let's stand to our feet this morning. Let's stand up this morning. God wants you to see Jesus only. He wants you to look at yourself and see only Jesus. This Lenten season, he wants to teach you how to look in the mirror as is. So that you will only see Jesus. Do you know like 22 years ago, I spoke down in our basement at a youth event and they gave me two mirrors. One mirror was not broken at all, and one mirror was shattered. And the youth pastor said, I want you to teach on why we look at ourselves in a shattered mirror. And when I got to the moment of teaching, it dawned on me that I think we had it backwards. I think we want to look in the shattered mirror. I think it's harder to look in the shattered mirror because when I see flaws in the shattered mirror, I could say, oh, it's the mirror's fault. Mirror, mirror on the wall, you're broken. But when you look at the mirror that's perfect and you see flaw, you start to say, oh, that's my fault. We want the mirror to break so that we can hide behind the cracks in the mirror and not see the cracks in ourselves. When Jesus has the disciples stand up, they don't have to build anything. They don't have to produce anything. They are learning now to see Jesus Christ and him only. This Lenten season, God wants you to see only Jesus when you look at yourself. When you look at the people around you, when you look at your family, your friends, your kids, your coworkers, yes, even that coworker, he wants you to see Jesus. When you look at the mountains in your life and the issues in your life and the valleys in your life and the blessings in your life, he wants you to look at them and see Jesus. And so that way you know when you see Jesus, you know who's responsible for it all. You, he doesn't treat you. He's not an or else savior. He doesn't give us a, if you do, then God will law. You can because God did is what he offers us. It's not if you do, then God will. It's because God always does that we can try. And when he bends down, when we're standing before him accused, like the woman caught in adultery, does he write in stone? He writes in sand and then blows it away. That's grace. They're, they're telling Jesus all of her sins. Well, we caught her here, and we caught her there, and she was doing, and Jesus is writing down all the things that she did. Then he stands up, and he's like, Phew. now that that's out of the way, you all can leave with your rocks now, because I'm offering her bread. That's what he's doing for you this morning. It's what he's going to do for you this entire Lenten season. On Ash Wednesday, we're going to have cards here, and we're all going to write down one or two of those voices that we hear that say, or else. And we are going to leave them anonymously. Don't write your name, please. I don't write your name. We're just going to write on them, and we're going to leave them on the altar for the entire Lenten season, and we just want the Lord to loosen up that voice and let his quiet whisper speak a better word than the or else voice in our life. When Moses comes down the mountain, he throws stones at everybody and breaks the Ten Commandments. 
when Jesus comes down the mountain, he says, I'm here to bear with you. Bring the boy to me. He doesn't throw anything at us. He becomes the broken commandments. On the night when he was betrayed, our Lord took bread. And he looked down at the broken bread. And he probably saw the shattered commandments on the ground when Moses came down and saw that everybody was misbehaving. And Jesus looked at the bread. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Don't have to throw anything anymore. You don't even have to put the new copy in a mercy seat made with hands. We're going to put the law in flesh made by the hands of God, destroyed by the hands of sinful men, and then raised for those sinful hands to be redeemed. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would descend on this bread and make it for your people the body and blood of Jesus the food and drink of new and unending life in him. Thank you that our sins are not written on this bread, but your name is written on it. This is how we touch the hem of your garment. For the last 2,000 years, you have allowed us to touch your physical body in this sacrament. And Salem, let me tell you, this is just a prophetic word. The reason why God gave us bread and said it becomes my flesh and the reason why there's so much drama around it in all the churches is because he's teaching us to see him in things we don't want to see him in. The reason why we can't agree on what happens to the bread is because we really don't agree on what happens to us. If he really becomes bread, if this really is what it is like to touch Jesus' body, how much more will he fill me? How much more will he really accept me as I am? That's a scary thought for some of us, not a comforting one. So we want to debate, oh, no, 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 no. He doesn't show up in bread. He shows up here because when you get in your car, he's going to show up there. He turns this into his body to let us know that he's turning this room into his body. He says, this is my body which is given for you so that we can leave here and say to the world, these are not my slings and stones flung at you. This is my love. This is my mercy. This is my forgiveness offered to you. Holy Spirit, descend on us also and make us for ourselves, for the person next to us, and for the life of the world, the body of Christ, the church. I pray this Lenten season, starting on Wednesday, that these words we write down on these cards will be prophetic and that you will begin to heal what you revealed to us that night that you want healed in our life. And that when Easter comes, we will be people who don't hear or else anymore, but we hear you are my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. Salem, you can come and receive. Uh, Elder George will be over here, and you can come and receive. Elder Ron will be over here, and you can come and receive. And then after service is over, after Elder Ron closes the service, our kids will be brought up. If you have kids that are downstairs, stay right where you are when the service is over. Your kids will be brought to you. Salem, come to the table of the Lord. Thanks for listening to the Salem Tabernacle Podcast. For more information about us, including gathering times and our location, check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.